Right here, right now, every day. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show and this is the first of a series that I'm doing on phenomenal activists in our midst. midst. And of course there are, there are thousands but I'm focusing on the activists who've actually changed laws and the laws that they've changed have actually saved lives. So that narrows it quite a lot. Um, and the first one that I want to uh, highlight is, uh, and I'm just thrilled that she's here today, is Susan Gabka, who I, I once described to uh, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, as being the best lobbyist I've ever seen. And she did it with next to nothing uh, on trans rights. So before we get into uh, the bill that, uh, your activism and of course there's always others but you stand out susan that became law which was called toby's uh bill and i will talk about that a bit but i want to start with you why activism at all how did you get involved as an activist good grief um you know i was asked this question um after we passed toby's act and who remembers what day it was july 13th 2012 20 2012, I'm losing track of the time after this election. And uh, I was asked at the, you know, a regular interview. And at the end of the interview, they says, and tell me like what in your, just the question you asked. And I went on this, I started thinking back and there is nothing in my previous life that suggests no political family, dynasty, no, um, no, um, no, like first, first one in my uh, family, immediate family who got, uh, uh, who went past high school for an education. Of course, that come with some uh, challenges. I uh, grew up in a military base. Um, post World War Two, I learned a lot about on Air Force Trent, Trenton, Ontario Air transport command and that's the life i learned we used to walk on on hercules like on like uh, visitors day as a children of the military and then i come then i moved to toronto and it was like the air show oh my god i gotta see the airplanes i go what's up with that i'm used to them so uh there was nothing in my background that suggested that i would become both the person that I am today. Um, I had always felt that I was different. I uh, rebelled against uh, the rigid rules. I fought in the classroom. I acted out at home. Um, I fought in the schoolyard. I think it was acted out in the classroom and just rebelled at home and, um, and really was on a very, I guess, can I say dark path? Because I've told you a little bit. And now that I'm not running for public office anymore, I could be a little bit more open about my background. But being trans growing up um, 50 years ago, years ago, um, was not a, was not a bright prospect. I felt guilty. I felt ashamed of who I was. 
um, everything around me it was illegal um, and everything around me suggested society that that was not appropriate. So I tried to push it down. I tried to hide it. And um, the result was um, harmful behaviors around alcohol, around drugs, um, becoming homeless on the streets of Toronto, having no hope in my life whatsoever. So the idea that I've turned it around and become a political activist says wonderful things about our society. And even though there's so many challenges in our political structures, I didn't reach the pink ceiling, but I hooked up with such a fabulous activist with like you, and we were able to achieve some things that I feel have um, is really going to benefit the next generation of trans and non-binary children. So, so Susan, uh, going back a little bit, talk about hitting the streets. Um, talk about that period and how you got out of that. How did you get into it and how did you get out of it? I felt alone, isolated as a child. There were no role models for me to aspire to. Heard of Christian Jordanson. Um, and I don't want to say it was just my gender identity um, conflict, but a lot of abuse at, at home. My father was a war veteran, and um, I've never come to terms with that, actually, because um, he was very abusive, and it was a very dysfunctional family unit. And what I didn't know was that other people actually had different types of lives. So... Um, I escaped and I went from being that nerd in school, which uh, to being the cool kid overnight when I started experimenting with drugs. And, you know, when we I'll just say Timothy Leary, uh, turn on, tune in and drop out. And that's exactly I thought that was pretty good advice at the time because I didn't know anything else. I didn't have I didn't have supportive people in my life. I didn't have people who validated who I wanted to be. So I reacted in negative ways and anger and frustration. And I'm so glad that, um, you know, I just, um, I've been blessed that it's turned out the way it has. So let's, let's say you've come out as trans, you've turned your life around in terms of uh, addiction issues. Um, why activism at all? Why not just live your life? You know, you've got a sober life, live it, you know, one day to the next. Uh, why, why more? I felt that my struggles had been so challenging and so, but you know, fork in the road, but for the grace of God go I, that either I see no reason I should be alive today because of my own, can I call it, uh, adventurous youth, uh, mis death by misadventure. And um, I just felt some sort of, someone's told me I had a really strong eth moral ethical compass. And so that's been wonderful to have sometimes too hard to work with people in this society, capitalist society. But um, I wanted to not others not to have the same experience that I did. 
when I came out to my parents, I tried to come out to my parents when I was eight years old. My first memory was playing marbles with the boys uh, on the lawn and between the houses. And the girls were playing uh, house, wearing their mother's pearls and heels and dresses. And it just felt immediately I should be over there playing with them. And this is a memory that I still can remember like it was yesterday. So I asked my parents if I could play house with the girls. And they said, no, boys don't do that. And there, we don't have time, but it was a number of experiences like this growing up. And I, uh, I wanted younger people to grow up. And I don't know if I really thought of it younger until I got older, but I wanted other people not to have to go through what I experienced. And, um, Thank goodness for that. So, so going back, how old were you and how did you start into activism? What did you do? What were the early steps? I did get off the streets, thank to some supports. I had a very, um, can I say, right of center political ideology and through my own experience, which is why I can relate to some of these radicalized people. So I, I've gone through the libertarian and the anarchist phase. I've learned that I needed the support, that, that, that ideology of pull your bootstraps up, get a job. And I had a job and I pulled my bootstraps up, but I needed community supports. I needed those social programs, social determinants of health. So that really opened me up to being able to become who I was. But, um, and the people around me in that environment at Parkdale Community Health Center and going, and then I went to George Brown College, the community worker program. And I had people around me that supported me, that cared for me. And uh, I was able to come out and um, the Mike Harris government, the conservative government had just, it was 1998, had just cut um, funding for uh, what's now called, it was called sex reassignment surgery. It's now called gender affirming surgeries or gender procedures. And um, they had just cut that, um, um, funding for that and I was I had, was working at City Hall and I was helping political people out just trying to do homeless stuff and some drug policy reform and I realized there was a real gap in service for trans people transsexual and transgender people so we created the trans lobby group and uh, we became the mighty group that could according to some stories and I just want to thank you Sherry, for your kind words in uh, in your book, uh, queer the queering remind me the queer evangelist. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and you were, you know, I I just want to thank you for your kind words because, um, um, thank you, I appreciated it. Well, let's let's go back a little bit. So you start the trans lobby group. Um, you say we, and you're a very modest person, Susan Gapka. Um, it, was it we or was it you? And if it was we, so who was involved in that? In that, One activist, group? Martine Stonehouse, had filed a case with the Ontario government 
around cutting of surgery. There was a bunch of different cases that were put together and they, so Martine wanted to um, have supports. So it turned out Martine was the QP labor activist and leading the case to get her surgery funded as were, and there was like Michelle Hogan, um, Andrew from Hamilton and um, someone else who escapes my mind right now, because it is a bit of a, but it's in the archives somewhere. And uh, we supported that case by doing the political action. And there was an MPP, Marilyn Shirley, and we were trying to do an event. And uh, we finally got an audience uh, at Queen's Park, asked a question for Trans Day of Remembrance. Oh my goodness, it must have been the first or second one in Canada 20 years ago. And uh, there was a question asked in question period. When will you refund this surgery? Uh, that of course, we came out of Queen's Park. So she gave us all, we're trying to, we're trying to figure out how to do this, right? Like we had protests, we could barely get three people to a protest, but this one time, and then she gave us tickets into the gallery. And then when we came out, reporters, it was my first scrum and she turns, why don't you talk to Susan? She's one of the ones who are trying to get this. And um, um, it just, uh, yeah, we, um, it went from there, but there was a few, a handful of other people too. So Martine and Joanne Neverman, um, Shadmuth Manzo, who really wanted us to do the um, identity documents. A lot of people have come to transition support, which meets at the 519. A lot of people couldn't get employment, couldn't um, get housing or access to services because their legal identity, their legal documents did not match who they were living as. So that's how that came about. And of course, Sherry, you know how um, Toby's act came about is we lost the human rights case. Is that your next question? I uh, will we'll get there. I have another question okay. before. I'm just going to interrupt you for a minute. So while you were working with the trans lobby group, how were you supporting yourself? Well, I was going to school. I was on social assistance and I still am long-term disability because of my um, hardship. Um, and um, I actually got involved. Um, I just want to interrupt you there because that is significant that you're, I, you know, one of the, the startling things about I think your story, not yours mm -hmm. alone, but your story is that you're not a wealthy lobbyist. You're not working oh. even with a political group. You're not working on behalf of any group that's paying you to do this work. You're doing it because you want to do it because you feel you need to do it. Mm -hmm. And you're and you're on social assistance while you're doing it. So continue now. Thank you. Well, I had to make a decision. I was getting an education. I went I love politics so much. I went to York University. I graduated fifth in my class of about 130 and got a scholarship and I studied public policy administration and I had to make this decision. Should I try to get a job and pay for what I need? Or should I get an education and learn how to do what we need? And I took that decision. And it's been, you know, I never knew it would take 15 years. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know it would take this long. But um, I feel good now that I made that decision. But I ended up going to um, um, there was a, a cut to services um, 
work fair. Um, they were realigning what uh, social assistance and disability looked like. And I walked into a forum at, I think it's St. Andrews, uh, the church by St. Michael's, St. Michael's Cathedral. Um, there's a church there. At, oh, Metropolitan United Church? Yes. Yes. And there was an interfaith forum. And I went in there and I stood at the back of the room and it was about social assistance and they were advocating. And I spoke just from the back of the room, this gigantic church. And I say, I used to sleep in that park out front and now I've gotten housing and I'm living a better life. And I want to go to school to get an education, but I'm worried that if these cuts will mean that I can't do that. Well, apparently I made a good impression on some people. I was recruited to depute in op at Queens Park by Daily Bread Food Bank and um, the ball uh, against the, the um, social assistance cuts. And then the next thing you know, I'm, um, I'm advocating and working with Social Planning Toronto to uh, stop those cuts. But that was sort of my entry into um, activist life. Of course, they had just cut um, um, access to healthcare for trans people in Ontario. And so that seemed like a real serious gap as well. So now let's talk about Toby's Act. Uh, and, uh, and so if you could take us back to uh, our first meeting, maybe, mm -hmm. and then what happened. Uh, first of all, why Toby's Act? Explain what Toby's Act is about to those listening and uh, why it was so necessary. Well, I talked about the legal identity that we were doing. We had the human rights case for access to health care. And of course, in not that I remember, um, I've forgotten the exact date. I think it's 2006, November 28th, that case. Um, we were unsuccessful and we were appealing it. And I think in early December, December 12th, perhaps, we met in your office to say, now what? And uh, it was your suggestion, um, Sherry, that we should amend the Human Rights Code to include gender identity. And um, I think it was just gender identity at the time. And that was introduced the next year in March, uh, along with the, some sort of human rights event. And, um, yeah, and uh, what was the question again? I'm just remembering yeah, that so moment, that, that sitting moment. at the little table in yes. your desk. <laughs> had I known, and now that I think of it, because with the Gal Canada, we had moved a national bill, which became C-16, but it started out at 400, 389, 276. And you know, as the numbers get um, closer to one, that you're mo more of a priority. Some people wouldn't know that. Um, but that yeah. didn't happen till way after Toby's uh, Toby's act was made law. So let, let's talk about well, we like, had already go back done there. that. I yeah, just remembered I, my point. Yeah, uh, we had already done that. And, you know, now that I look at it, we should have gone first with the human rights in Ontario. But this case was ongoing, but it did get people engaged from our communities to fight for things that we needed. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Go no. No. Go uh, ahead. Um, and and um, and perhaps uh, Toby's uh, act uh, again. You said gender identity. Then it got amended to gender identity and gender expression. Mm -hmm. um, and it was tabled. Yes, that time. 
Um, uh, at, but I want I want to ask you, Susan, what else did you do? Because you didn't stop with just visiting me, and we got the bill out there under my name. But you continued visiting others, including conservatives. Talk about that. Well, um, we did. Well, there. Let's just say Mike Harris and Ernie Eves were not the people I considered going to. But one day we came out of a committee meeting. I forget what the legislation was. I think it was, um, um, I think in 2009, or they amended the Human Rights Act. And I thought, well, while you're amending the act, put gender identity in. But you know, they did time allocation on that. But I remember meeting Christine Elliott coming out of a committee meeting, and I thought, maybe I could talk to her. And she agreed to have a meeting with us. And oddly enough, we went and presented our case, figured it would be a, you know, well, this is got to try, right? Got to try anyways, you know, we want to get this. And she looks at us and says, you know, I think we made a mistake when we cut it. Um, I'm going to send a note to our leader, John Torrey, saying we made a mistake. Um, there had been people in her community who had visited her and said that this uh, cutting of access to health care was a problem for them. So we got her as an ally. And then, of all people, Lisa McLeod, when she got elected, was very supportive. And it's a bit, there's so many things we disagree on with people in that party. But yet on this, we were able to persuade people and as a, you know, as a genuine human right. For and, people. And I should say, this was during a liberal government. So you also, of course, visited government members. Yes. Who did you visit over there at the time? Well, we met, um, well, Glenn Murray was my local MPP, but before Glenn Murray was George Smitherman. And so we had to, um, and George was supportive, but the premier was not. And we and that had. That was Dalton McGinty at the time. Yes. And we had got an agreement in the court case, which is not well known. This, listen up, folks. Um, I don't know. If, uh, there was an agreement in the case to settle the human rights case and that we would have it funded. But that was when they cut chiropractic optometrist services, the first liberal budget. So George uh, Smitherman leaked it out during an event the night before it was going to be an, the contract was going to be signed. And of course, someone had to call the premier's office and there's no way we're doing this. And um, so that was a serious, serious setback. But about that. But Toby's, let's just, we just, we don't have that many minutes left. So I want to focus on, you know, this major piece of legislation. It mm -hmm. was at the time the first in North America of any jurisdiction of any mm -hmm. size to add gender identity and gender expression to, yes. a, hu to a human rights code. Um, Susan, speaking to Susan Gapka here, who was uh, a prime mover and shaker activist behind that uh, change. Um, so how many times was that bill introduced and then finally got passed with all party support, right? All three members. So just speak about like, you know, what the process to making it law. Yeah, there's so many stories to tell. It would take longer, but post pandemic, we'll try to do that. Um, it was a minority government. I think we had introduced it three times already. I was in Ottawa. Yasser Nakfi actually was one of our, uh, he just got elected, re-elected federally. Um, 
but had been supportive in Ottawa and um, he was campaigning and I was on the bus back to Toronto and his staff suggested, let's, uh, what do you call it? Get sponsors from all three parties to bring it forward. So we tried that and it was incredible. It kind of worked. Um, but, uh, and the other thing that gender expression was added, remember we did a, um, we did um, um we had a community session at, at Metropolitan Community Church and someone yelled out in the crowd, um, I had gender expression and you shrugged your shoulders and said, okay. And maybe the first time uh, the people who write the legislation didn't agree to it, but it went in this time and we, and it was successful. And that was, that was. And interestingly that, enough, that was a good time. A tri-party, it was the first tri-party bill that became law um, that was of a major issue. We started mm -hmm. with kind of motherhood and apple pie things at Queen's yes. Park um, uh, that pr pretty much everybody could agree on, you know. Uh, but I mean, this was this was a controversial topic still when it when it was passed. Um, certainly that made it the first in North America. Mm -hmm. um, so so if you were to sum up <laughs> Uh, what has made you such as, and you haven't stopped there, we could go on for days, but we only have you know, three more minutes. Um, uh, if you could sum up, Susan, what, what do you attribute your success? Um, because you're not only an activist, um, but you've actually uh, really brought about changes in law that have really brought about changes in people's lives. Without human rights, don't got a lot. So talk about oh. you. What is it about you? Oh, about me, because yeah. I was going to use the mechanics of how we did a lot of public media mm -hmm. um, to educate people and meeting with politicians. Um, we put a human face on it and I became part of that human face because I responded. What about me? I wish I knew. I just but, I mean, you also found supporters of Marilyn Shirley and myself and others, Yasser Nakfi and Christine Elliott, and you also talked to people right across the political spectrum. You didn't stop start stop with the obvious supporters, right? Well, I think not giving up um, determination. I was driven at the time to see this success. Um, you had a personal stake. And in I this. think that um, just because of the hardship I had as a as a youngster. Uh, would go and have some harsh words with a professor at school. I go, really, they wouldn't survive a day on the street with all those books. I was like, I'm being, I'm not thinking like that now, but I just love, but like, thought, as a trans person, I don't think I'm alone, is it was so difficult, so hard, so tough to be beaten down and beaten down and beaten down. And I did survive uh, through the gift of life, some sort of miracle, but that gave me the strength and determination to let nothing, nothing get in the way of, um, of achieving our goals. And I think that's part of it. And partly is my goal of wanting the world to be a better place for people like myself. Uh, that became a shared vision among uh, Canadians and Ontarians, and not everyone as we've learned, but now I get to be a bit like, as I age, 
the grandma for a whole generation, uh, a grandparent, maybe and now in gender neutral land, but uh, I get to be, you know, a good positive role model for an entire generation of Canadians. And, and that is just a beautiful place to be. And just to conclude, we should, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that a federal bill followed this um, and made this uh, part of the federal human rights code as well. When did that happen? I think it was 2016. It had languished under a conservative government, um, even though we had got it to Senate. Um, we had got it to Senate with conservative support. But of course, um, some parties or some people get to the promised land easier than others. Some people are stuck under the rocks or behind, uh, behind the trees. But, uh, but the wonderful thing is, is that in Canada, and as we know with marriage equality and other women's rights, et cetera, that it's like a growing tree. This is the analysis. Our rights are ever expanding and we had to bring people along to that narrative. And uh, now we're working on getting some, you know, there's other uh, communities that have been left behind and we've got to work on that as well. Let's leave no one behind. Thanks. So I've been speaking to Susan Gapka, a phenomenal trans activist who was the mover and shaker behind Toby's Act that added gender identity and gender expression to the Ontario Human Rights Code. And of course, the inspiration behind the federal bill as well that made it part of the federal landscape. Uh, so that's how trans rights became human rights. Thank you so much, Susan, for being on the Radical Reverend Show and keep on keeping on. Amazing. We'll see you at the other end of the pandemic. <laughs> the sound of your city. CIUT 89.5 Toronto. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show and continuing on with our terrific activists, not uh, I mean, there are lots of terrific act activists, millions and millions of them, of course, but these particular activists have actually been instrumental in changing laws. And that's what we're focusing on over the next few weeks on the Radical Reverend Show. So today for our second guest, I'm so delighted to have Vincent Bolt with us. Vincent Bolt is a northerner in Ontario. Um, so Vincent, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you for having me. So let's start with you. Who are you? How'd you get to be you? You know, how'd you get to be an activist in the first place? Who am I? That's a good question. I don't even know some days. And <laughs> I am somebody who realized that they were trans when they were relatively young. I was about 14 years old when I came to that realization. And that was some years ago and you know born in the late 80s growing up in the 90s there wasn't really much discussion about trans people and i heard a lot of jokes growing up in popular culture about trans women um of course there were a few jokes here and there on the simpsons and shows like that in the 90s um i watched hedwig and the angry inch when i was in the eighth grade and that changed my life and, but I didn't realize that people could go from female to male until I was in the ninth grade. And once I learned that, I said, whoa, this explains so much about me. 
and I started my transition and that would have been in 2004 and 2003, 2004, that school year. And there was no turning back once I put on men's clothing or you know, clothing from the men's section for the very first time and saw myself in the mirror and went, this is me. I like what I see. And that really inspired me because living in Sudbury, where there were no resources specifically for trans people, there were very few resources for 2S LGBTQ plus people. And, you know, I did attend a youth group in the later high school years, but for the years that I attended, I was the only T in the 2S LGBT group. And it was a very lonely experience being the only trans person I knew for the first three years of my transition. So that's something that really inspired me later on to make resources in the community and help build these resources so that nobody would have to transition alone. So, you know, then TG Intercells happens. I mean, let's talk about how you went from transitioning yourself to activism. Like, why be an activist? Why not simply transition, live your life, do something else? There were some selfish reasons for that. I came out to everybody when I was in grade 11. I was, you know, slowly coming out piece by piece, um, transitioning, transitioning little by little in grade nine and grade 10. You know, being a 14 year old kid with no job, it meant that I had to wait until holidays when I got money to buy one or two articles of clothing a little bit at a time. So by the time I was at that midpoint in grade 10, you know, dressing full-time as male. And that's finally when I said, okay, now I got to start telling more and more people. Beginning of grade 11 was when I told everybody. But the problem was most of the people I told didn't even know what transgender meant. And there were people who were happy to be educated. And once I spent some time and energy explaining what transgender means, what the process is that I'm going through, why I'm using the name Vincent, why I'm using these pronouns. Um, you know, a lot of people did respect my name and pronouns and made the effort, but there were also a lot of people who didn't. And that's what I really started thinking about this and said, I don't want to have to come out to thousands of people in my life and have to give a trans one-to-one every single time. And then around this time where there's got to be an easier way, I had gone to the school that I went to for grade seven and eight to pick something up for my sister because she had recently graduated from that school. Um, it's a school that goes from grade seven to grade 12. And the reason I only stayed there for grade seven and eight was because I had a horrendous experience. It was a very strict Catholic school and I was treated horribly there, um, especially when I came out as bisexual. And there were some teachers who were supportive of me, a couple, and I happened to run into one of them while I was there. And when he saw me, he said, wow, you look so different because 
I had shaved off most of my hair. I was wearing, you know, baggy jeans and a t-shirt and wasn't wearing a kilt, you know? So some, some differences. And he said, I want to hear more about this. So we talked for about an hour. And at the end of it, he said, I really want you to come and speak to my class. And we talked a little bit about that. And I said, yes, I'll do it. It was the first time I'd done any public speaking. Um, and his motivation, one, he wanted the students to learn about trans people. Two, he wanted to make sure that any student who was at that school who was experiencing what I went through didn't feel alone. Three, he wanted to make changes in that school. And he was, he was one of those people who really pushed the boundaries. And four, it was also that opportunity for me to say to all of my old classmates, look at where I am now. I, I went with it. It was terrifying. Um, I had no idea how it was going to go. And I was expecting 24 students in its classroom. And instead, when I got there, he said, okay, follow me. We're going downstairs to the library. There are about 60 people in the library. And in order to calm my nerves, so I actually just sat on a table with my legs crossed and just told my story. And I did that for the entire period. Um, so that school is walking distance from where I went to high school. And I walked back to, high, to my high school for the rest of my classes that day. And I remember sitting there and I, I had guitar class right after that and I couldn't even play a note. I was just in awe of what just happened. And that's when I realized I needed to be an activist. I needed to do public speaking. I needed to tell my story. And I continued to actually to go back to that school for several years to do presentations. Um, that same year was, I believe the first year that the Northern Ontario School of Medicine was open, out of the first year or second year. And I spoke to students at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine that year and the next year. And it was kind of an ego stroke for me to sign myself out of high school to teach med school students. Going, How many, you know, 17 year olds and 18 year olds get to say they, they did that. Around that time, it's actually when TG and herself started. And there were a few, a few other trans people in Sudbury who said we're sick and tired of there being no resources. And it was a social group that met every second week at two o'clock in the afternoon. So during work and school hours, because the not-for-profit organization where we, where they were giving us the space to do this was only open until four o'clock and said, you know, we, we can't stay open late for you. So take it or leave it. So I was also signing myself out of school for that. And I was involved with TG and ourselves from day one. And that group grew. Um, we eventually started doing not just groups, but public speaking, one-on-one um, -on -one support for trans people. And as time passed, we were able to get funding and we ended up partnering with the Sudbury Action Center for Youth and becoming a program there. Now, uh, I'm going to insert myself into the story a little bit. Um, all those stories about you, I'm talking to Vincent Bolt here, activist who actually uh, got uh, a, a law change, a really significant one, called Banning Conversion Therapy in Ontario, the first major jurisdiction in North America to do that. 
um, and uh, talking about his journey. So do you remember like when I met you because I remember meeting your group. I was there in Sudbury for something else and I can't even remember why I was there. I think I was on a tour around other kind of queer issues. Um, and I remember asking you, I remember this much, I remember asking you, so what do we need? Like, what do you need? Because by then, uh, Toby's act had passed. Um, and so we introduced uh, gender identity and gender expression for into the Ontario Human Rights Code, which was a huge win and took many, many years to, to get. Um, so what can we do now? And I can't remember who said it. Um, I don't think it was you, but obviously you were in the room, um, said we need to ban conversion therapy. Uh, so I want you to talk about why conversion therapy is such an issue for trans folk and why it was then. Why was that the issue? This was shortly after Leela Alcorn's suicide. And so many of us were shaken by her story and shaken by her suicide note that was post automatically posted to social media. And I remember sitting in my office and it was a day I was working late. Um, I was in the bill. I think I left work at nine o'clock that evening alone in the building, a cold winter, dark, depressing day in a windowless office um, building. I was in, they converted a storage room into my office, uh, the not-for-profit world. Gotta love it. And of course, towards the end of my day, I come across this story and it took me out of the knees. Um, and then, you know, my colleagues had also read this story and were also deeply saddened and moved by this and also angered. You know, not only was she subject to conversion therapy and rejection from her family when she died, but her family buried her as male and had her given name put on her headstone. And so even in death was denied who she was. So not only were we you know, upset about this, but we're thinking, okay, this is happening here. This, this continues to happen here in Ontario. And we do not want any young people here to be subjected to this quackery for a lack of a better word. And when, uh, when I got the email actually from, from Sherry's office to say, hey, can you set up a meet and greet with the community? I said, absolutely, I'll do this and call all of my contacts and connections because um, I, I know a lot of 2SLGBTQ plus people. Also, you could do this Venn diagram of 2SLGBTQ plus people in Sudbury and NDPers in Sudbury, and a lot of us fall in the middle. And so especially calling up my NDP friends who are also part of the community. And, you know, we had this get together at the library. Libraries are this recurring theme in my life, okay? And it was, it was Rita Olink, and I do have to give her credit. She's the one who stood up and said that conversion therapy needed to be banned. And she is one of the founding members of TG and ourselves and has been a huge backbone of the program for many years and very outspoken, um, also really pushed for the federal ban as well. And because I remember originally it wasn't going to be a ban, it was going to be a 
an end to OHIP coverage, if I remember correctly. And her words are probably, well, if I remember correctly around the lines of that's not good enough, um, this quackery needs to be banned. She doesn't mince words. Um, we love Rita. And, and that got the ball rolling. And so, um, I mean, that bill and the passage of that bill into law really goes down in my memory as a minor miracle. I mean, so to contrast that, and the first half of the show, I was talking to Susan Gapka about getting Toby's Act done and how many times we had to table it and how many, just years and years it took to get that. Um, banning conversion therapy was a different story entirely. It was like the stars aligned, but you were one of those stars in Simple, so that's what I'm talking to. Um, because that moment, I said, oh really? And uh, at that moment, maybe you can speak to this. Um, there was one place in Ontario um, that uh, was known, I mean, it was one of the entry points of people who were looking at transitioning, one of the major entry points in Toronto. and. Um, uh, because, uh, uh, and, and, and we could, let's talk about it without naming it because, <laughs> because now as then we're still a little concerned about lawsuits. So we can talk about this large institution uh, that was practicing a version of conversion therapy for trans folk. So that when we had the presser at Queens Park, we talked about people who'd gone through that program. And at that point, that was one of the few. So maybe talk about what the process was to transition and why conversion therapy, um, you know, intruded its crazy self into that all right i will carefully say this to avoid a libel suit um i was a patient at that clinic and i can say that my experience wasn't conversion therapy but my experience was far from pleasant and i think that a lot of the practices um that had happened i shouldn't say think <laughs> i know a lot of the practices that were happening at that clinic were not in line with current best practices and this is this is coming from somebody who is working as a social worker psychotherapist and working with people who are going through the transition process in a far different way from how they were doing it they took a very an overly cautious approach where I often felt like they were trying to catch me in a lie and trying to tell me that there was another way without outright saying no but it was that fine if you must insist we will eventually let you move forward and the questioning process the interview process it was very invasive they were asking a lot of detailed questions about sexual history and i'm not just talking about are you sexually active um very detailed invasive questions and this is a clinic for children and adolescents. So I found that incredibly disturbing. And for me, it was a horrible experience as a teenager coming out of that. And there were a lot of 
things that just felt really out of place, for example, having to do, you know, cognitive testing without it really being explained why they said, oh, we need to make sure that you are capable of understanding. But I did a whole day of, you know, IQ tests and had no idea why, like, what are you doing? Because I brought my report cards to prove that I was using the name Vincent for as long as I'd been using it. Because when I had legally changed my name, the school started printing my report cards with that name. But even before I legally changed my name, my teachers were putting Vincent in the comments. So they had my report card saying that I had a 92% in enriched English. They had their proof that I could understand the words they were saying. Why did I have to rearrange blocks and do all of these different tests? And that was not clear to me. I found out years later, they were using the children and adolescents in this program as research subjects. And the argument can be made if you are made to feel that you have to go through all these hoops in order to get your referral for hormones and surgery, and it's under that kind of duress, is it really informed consent? And I wonder how that got through ethics. And so there were a lot of things happening at that clinic that were really questionable and and that was my experience. I know that that other people had very different experiences. Um, on one hand, it did allow me to move forward. I did eventually get that referral to an endocrinologist. I I was eventually referred to the adult clinic where I could access surgery. But that was a process that did not need to happen because um, I talked to people who do the pediatric trans care, and they are not running trans kids through IQ tests. They're not using trans kids as research subjects. Um, I remember one um, trans woman on the presser that we did for the banning conversion therapy bill, and, and she said that um, as a young teenager, she was asked to uh, sort of sit while a team of white coated you know, medical professionals told her that she was far too male to ever pass as female. Um, I hold that example in your your discussion up as because this was one of the major places for transition, one of the only places, if not the only for many. Um, I also remember just in travels for the Gay-Straight Alliance Committee, when that bill was in process, um, asking for Gay-Straight Alliances and making them mandatory in all schools, um, that a group of psychiatrists came whose entire practice was conversion therapy and they claimed success. They said, you know, we can turn queer kids straight. Um, here's the proof. I, I, I think found, the whole committee found that shocking. For most people, I think even back then, didn't really know that it was happening. So, so maybe talk about conversion therapy where you are in Northern Ontario. Like who was doing it? What, were you aware of it up there? I have heard stories about this happening even after the bill passed from evangelical churches and people who are saying, you know, they're trying to give in, convince me not to transition. They're trying to convince me that I'm cisgender. The problem is I really do want to support these individuals and, and also help make sure this isn't happening to anybody else, but a lot of people are too afraid 
to say it. Um, I'm hearing it secondhand from people, not from a person that it's happening to, and they fear coming forward. So there's still, there's still a lot of fear around speaking up. And I think a lot of people are experiencing a lot of shame. Um, I think that with young people who are experiencing this, it's not as simple as saying, I'm going to call a local activist, say this is happening, and they're going to come in and, you know, tell off the priest, because that will have a huge ripple effect within their family and their their social systems. So it's, it is difficult. Um, where we can really crack down is when it's happening in, you know, if if I found out that there's a therapist doing this, oh yeah, I am reporting them to their college. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and just because we don't have all that much time left, let's let's quickly go into what happened. Then I, I can speak from the um, you know from the legislative point of view. So basically, tabled the bill, got a second reading, passed second reading. Now people think that's a success. It is sort of, but most second reading bills still go down to the dust. Like they don't pass into law. What was different then was that the Premier of the province, so kudos to Kathleen Wynne at that point, came out and supported it, which was very, very rare. I think nobody, even the old timers had been there 30 years, had never seen a Premier come out on Thursday to support a second reading bill. Um, and uh, so threw her weight behind it. Um, uh, Andrea then threw her, the leader of the NDP, threw her weight behind it. Um, I was busy with my EA, Andrew Houston, so shout out to her, running up and downstairs, dealing with the press, trying to get the story out. We knew that the pressure was on the Liberals before Pride to do something about this. Um, so we used that timing. Um, so remarkably, from beginning to end, it took us only a few weeks for that bill to become law, which is, as I say, a minor miracle, of which you, Vincent Bolt, were, a, you know, the instigator, one of the instigators behind this. Um, so maybe we can jump ahead and, and say, yeah, absolutely, enforcement is critical, and we need the federal bill to pass because that makes it uh, criminal. Um, we can't make it criminal provincially. We can ban it for youth. Um, and we can um, delist it for adults, but we can't make it criminal. So more work to be done there. But I remember you coming to Queen's Park with TG Intersales, making the trek, right? Um, <laughs> um, talk about that, that experience. It was my first time ever speaking to the Legislative Assembly, and I am a very confident public speaker. I can speak in front of a thousand people and not be phased by it. But there was a lot of pressure that day, and... It was, it was interesting because one of the professionals at that clinic that we were talking about was there and like, oof, this is, um, this is really empowering. I get to help move this forward and hope that some of the practices at this clinic change, um, end up closing instead so to be in that seat talking about this bill talking about why it's important talking about why you know it's important to affirm to us lgbtq plus trans people um you know people who are and trans people of course who are going through their journeys because it's also not just trans people who experience this but gay lesbian bisexual two-spirit people who experience this as well in different ways 
one to make sure that there was justice for the people that this um, is happening to and was happening to and an end to it. And it was one of those things where I just said what I had to say. And I remember being asked any further comments and I'm going mind blank, just going, nope, nope, I, I'm good because it was definitely nerve wracking. And then it passed the next day. It was incredible. I remembered being so relieved to, to hear that all but one of the presentations to the Legislative Assembly were people in support of the bill. It was just one group of three who were speaking against it and saying, oh, but um, I think there was a psychologist who was saying, oh, but we're already, we already have our own um, protocols for this and reporting system and an activist calling them out on that and saying, it's still happening with members of their college. So obviously it's not working. It was a wonderful afternoon. So I've been talking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Vincent Bolt, incredible activist who really was one of the driving forces behind getting banning uh, conversion therapy passed into law in Ontario, um, the first in a major jurisdiction in North America. Still needs to be enforced, um, but um, thank you so much, Vincent, for all that you have done. And, and I just want to emphasize, you weren't paid for any of this. You're not a paid lobbyist. You did this uh, because you felt powerfully about it, and it was passed into law in 2015 in Ontario so thank you and uh, uh, and and keep on being an activist uh, because it works right <laughs> because it does change change laws and by the way that clinic was closed um, the director of the institution called me at home didn't even know she had my home number and uh, told me she it was closed uh, the director was retired early and um, and really it's a happy ending to that story Thank you, uh, Vincent, for being on Radical Reference Show. Thank you. Okay, so I'm stopping recording now. Thanks, Vincent. I'm going to race off to a demonstration now at Queen's Park. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>